So what qualifications do I have to talk to you about these things? I've had three careers. Um, uh, chairman was kind enough not to uh, introduce these, uh, the first one, but let me do it anyway in the spirit of full disclosure. I, I, was, I started off as a creature of the oil industry. I did geology here at this university um, and then went off uh, for uh, more than a decade um, actually teaching at Imperial College, but very much a creature of the industry. I consulted all over the world for the oil industry. This is uh, an oil exp exp uh, exploration expedition in Baluchistan in 1984. And if anyone had ever said to me at that time that you know I'd end up running a renewable energy company, I think I would have thought they were crazy. But it was climate change that drove me to this. And um, my research was on the history of the oceans, the geological history of the oceans. So when the first global circulation models started coming out in the late 1980s, I, I, I really, that flipped me around into thinking ahead of uh, perhaps lots of others that this is just nuts and we are going to wind up um, cooking the place or destabilizing the stable climate on which civilization has depended. So I went off for seven years. Um, I quit that life and went off for seven years um, to be an environmental uh, activist. So I you know, have been an activist. I still consider myself to be one, though my venture capital investors would hate to hear me speak in those terms. Uh, but I joined Greenpeace for um, that period and worked pretty exclusively on global warming at and around the climate negotiations. So I've seen the oil industry world, I've seen the world of activism with Greenpeace, and here I am tooling, tooling around in an oil spill in Spain. But most of the time I was actually at the negotiations working the business lobby. And that's what ultimately led me to set up the com company because I think, you know, uh, there are three main parts of the stage. There are the governments, there are the companies, and there is civil society, there are the people. Um, and, you know, the governments are struggling. I saw that all the way through to Kyoto. They did have some success of sorts of... Um, a tiny magnitude at Kyoto in that it, they didn't fail catastrophically the way they did in Copenhagen. But I always have felt they were going to struggle. Um, people, well, um, you know, most of the opinion polls would show still, notwithstanding the desperation to believe a more comforting uh, narrative offered by these um, conspirators in the, in the great success that the skeptics have had, be they Exxon funded or driven by their own um, desperation. Um, still, there is, a, there is a great body of, of public opinion that is at, at minimum very worried about this. Then there's, then there's industry. And without enlightened leadership in industry, without people who really get it and actually put the climate change thing ahead of profits, then there's no way we're, we're going to win. Not governments and people alone. You have to have that in industry, and you have to have feedback loops between society and industry. So that was my belief then. It's my belief now. And I set up Solar Century. We're now, you know, we've got offices in Madrid and Milan and La Rochelle in France. We're active in Germany. It's a genuinely European company, and it is the fastest-growing private energy company of any kind, believe it or not, in the UK, according to the Sunday Times tech track. Now... I don't say that with any great pride because that tells you more about how clapped out our energy policy is that a, um, you know, a company like ours can be the fastest growing. But, but that's, the way, that's the way it is. And we set this company up um, 
avowedly with the purpose of making as big a difference as we could with, with climate change. And I've raised four rounds of venture capital, and that's what I tell the investors every time. So think of it as, as an experiment within capitalism in the form into which we've allowed it to evolve. There are questions, there are valid questions as to whether capitalism in the form we have allowed it to evolve can remotely deliver us the solution from climate change. I recognize that. I hold massive reservations myself about whether that is the case. But the experiment is within the system to see what can be done to uh, spin things in the direction of sanity, survival, and genuine sustainability. And that includes sustainability in uh, business and economics. So we've tried to run the company in a way, um, me and the people that I've hired, to, that uh, reflects this. And we are, you know, um, we're a overtly a successful company. We're profitable again now, uh, two cycles to profitability. But we're also a campaigning company. So some of the tactics of Greenpeace here, you see us, um, a group um, of people ostensibly recognizing the UK construction, representing the UK construction industry, about to deliver a petition to number 10 for a feed-in tariff that would stimulate the market, get the market growing. And for those of you perhaps not so familiar with the state of play, there will be feed-in tariffs. The UK will be the 45th government to introduce a feed-in tariff to stimulate uh, micro-generation markets as of April this year. Um, and, you know, we were making the argument that these industries, of which we just won, there are plenty of others, um, can be the forerunners for a genuine Green New Deal where you know, we're getting people back to work in good jobs that are low-carbon jobs in energy services and the rest of it. And you may say, well, that's just one company um, behaving a bit like Greenpeace with our silly green collars to show that we're green-collar workers, including the um, fat cat uh, in the suit in the middle. Um, but actually, we were able to say that day that we represent pretty much the entire British construction industry, or what remains of it after the after the bonus cultists of, um, of wreck, wrecked, that wreaked their havoc in the financial crisis because the Federation of Master Builders, the National Roofing Association, leading architects around the country had all signed that letter. And so each one of those people nominally, although they come from Solar Century, represent you know, um, a, a broad spectrum of uh, industry that could go green. So um, let's have a think then about this positive image broadly. Uh, you might argue about some of the details that uh, we see on the right there. It's a low zero emissions future. It's renewably powered. Um, what would have, we have to do with a member of the family that can deliver that in order to make a convincing case? And I'm going to try and just zip through, in the case of solar photovoltaics, this tick box list um, there has to be genuine carbon savings. There's no point in, you'll hear stuff from the nuclear industry like solar photovoltaics um, is not worth doing because uh, it takes as much energy to make a solar panel as it will ever <laughs> create bullshit wrong by a long way, but that's what they say, you know, it's the belief systems at work. Um, fast growth, yes, it would be good if we could demonstrate that. Few constraints, resource constraints, because, you know, the nuclear industry has a problem with uranium. 
Um, do we with the sun and you know stuff we have to use? Does it make economic sense? Can it ever be economic? Tony Hayward, the chief executive of BP, said in a speech <coughs> the other day, solar photovoltaics will never be economic. Never was the word he used. How about this for a belief system? Who's advising this guy unless there's a technological breakthrough? I will tell you a very different story in just a few minutes. Um, but that's what you're dealing with out there. Has to go fast. For climate reasons, we've got to get to deep cuts quickly. How are we going to do that? I would suggest not with nuclear power, an industry that's by its own admission is going to take 10 years minimum to build the first nu new nuclear uh, reactor. Our dramas will be on the way to being over 10 years from now. Uh, can you really run a whole economy like that with renewable energy by mixing and ma matching? Is that feasible? What do people think in the industries? Is this just cloud cuckoo land? And what, what about jobs? I mean, we, we have huge problems in our economies. Uh, we don't want industries that are just um, powered by robots without many jobs. Uh, and the other two things, national security. You, you, this is something, if you haven't picked up already, you will be hearing a hell of a lot more about. What um, can these, in, these new technologies do for uh, building national security. And finally, that point I mentioned just now, um, if it is indeed the case, as growing numbers of people in the commentariat are saying, that actually we need to have a word with ourselves about the operating system for capitalism as we have it structured today, um, and in, we need to re-engineer it and redesign it. Uh, call it neo-capitalism if you like so that it's much less short-term and has a different, different operating manual. Um, to what extent do the renewable energy technologies push us in that direction or help us with those things? And this is no like a year ago that might have been a, ooh, this guy's left wing and um, we can't be thinking about that kind of stuff, but not anymore. If you read the Financial Times um, at the moment, over the last six months or so, post-credit crunch and the shakeout of it, there's, and forgive me if this is all familiar to you, but there's a whole new pattern of thinking. It is now no longer a radical thing to say to, uh, in different forms of words that we need to re-engineer capitalism. And if you haven't read, for example, the stuff that's coming out of the Stiglitz Commission on this, or the, new, the um, Commission for Sustainable Development here in the UK, then um, I commend that stuff to you and there are references to it all off my website, which I'll give you at the end. So let's zip through this list and um, see what we can come, come up with. Carbon savings. Well, this stuff is great at knocking out carbon. Um, in most countries, you're attacking coal and or gas directly. And this is how you most often see solar photovoltaics these days in massive ground-mounted solar farms. This is a 10-megawatt farm, 15,000 tonnes of CO2 a year saved in that particular mix of uh, traditional energy, which is from Abu Dhabi. And it, you know, it's interesting to note, in passing, this is an oil-rich state. What are they doing going for solar? Answer, they're freaking out over their gas supply. Uh, and there are only two countries in the Middle East that have a safe gas supply at the moment, Iran and Qatar. So that's one of the reasons they're doing solar, but they're, they're also um, aware of some of the other things as well. And the solar-powered city of Mazdar is in the background there. The other end of the spectrum, this is uh, the house that I lived in for a year, um, which is a two-up, two-down in Richmond when we started in that shed that our 
chair mentioned. Just over half a tonne of carbon dioxide a year saved off that uh, tiddly little roof there, which is the country's first solar roof tile home. And with that roof, I was able to generate, in cloudy Britain, more electricity than my daughter and I and her nuclear-powered hairdryer in daily use were able to consume in the course of a year. To be specific, we consumed just over 1,000. We generated 1,100 with that small roof. Um, and that gives you a feeling, if you didn't know already, that this is not about sunlight, this is about photons, and this stuff works like a dream, even in cloudy Britain. Of course, there's loads of roof space. This is our, um, one of our installations in Berlin, in Germany, uh, where you're, um, you're doing a lot more than that 1.6 kilowatts. And they're all over the place now. Um, Gaisley uh, Transportation Company, in, or a logistics company rather, in Spain, Procter & Gamble in Germany, and you know, different designs for different occasions, and the Eden Center down there in Cornwall where you, know, you want a bit of aesthetics on the roof as well. And uh, to give you a real sense of the frustration here, this is uh, the Brit Britain's first solar-powered street, a roof tile street. Uh, it's in Yorkshire, not a well-known sunny place, and these are our British-manufactured uh, so-called C21 roof tiles. The dark ones, the long strips of roof tile, are um, photovoltaic, so they're giving the electricity in the household. The light ones are solar thermal, so they're giving hot water, and one on, uh, getting on for two tons of carbon dioxide a year, saved by each roof. And this is really important now with what is coming up about the energy crisis. Uh, a house like this, if you marry up with energy efficiency, you can take to zero emissions easily, very easily, with A-grade lights and appliances. Um, one of the old ladies in this uh, housing development, this is low-income housing, has uh, done rudimentary energy efficiency stuff. She's got her bills down to five pounds a month. And this is in a world where traditional energy is, of course, if you'll pardon the pun, going through the roof. So what a prize is this? Zero emissions are possible in many buildings, and in this country, more than half, as I'm sure you know, more than half the emissions come from buildings directly and indirectly, and more than half of those come from the residential sector. So there's a big prize here, and the main thing that's missing for those of us on the front lines is imagination. Too many 60-year-old men, they are mostly men, late 50s, civil servants who don't get it, who fly desks in Whitehall, who can't be persuaded to go out and do field trips and see this stuff at work, and that's one of the cultural problems we have. You can do it on industrial buildings as well, commercial buildings like the headquarters of the Cooperative Bank in Manchester, and uh, this is Europe's largest solar photovoltaic facade on the side of that building, and other products that we have, or projects rather, that we've developed with architects based on that pioneering um, way of, of saving carbon in that instance without it even costing anything relative to the alternative which would have been functionalist facade material that wouldn't be generating free electricity for you. So what about fast growth? The best way to think of that is I think to look at the history of an investment fund that um, I've been a, a director of since 2000. I pitched the idea of this fund to invest in photovoltaics to a Swiss bank Saracen in um, 97. The fund was launched in 2000, and in 2002, the analysts at the bank um, predicted these grey bars for the growth of the global solar market. 
This was deemed, you know, exciting enough for the Swiss uh, private clients of the bank. Um, a, a good growth, not spectacular. That's actually what happened through 2008. This is real stuff. This is one of the fastest growing markets in the world. And it's mostly in the ground-mounted stuff. So our proposition of truly building integrated solar hasn't grown at that speed. But, you know, we, we would say this, wouldn't we? But we fully expect it to, especially with feed-in tariffs in the picture. So 85% growth before the bonus cultists um, cocked up our global economy for us last year. A lot of it driven by governments who get it and are themselves driven by fear about climate change, the Germans in particular. They introduced their so-called feed-in tariff um, properly in 2004, and look what it did to the market. Um, forgive me, probably most of you know what a feed-in tariff is, but just in case there are people who don't, this is what you do when you levy a tiny additional charge right across the rate base. So everyone plays a tiny amount extra on their electricity bills. It goes into a pot to use to pay premium prices for those people who go for solar roofs or other renewables. That's what it did from um, 2004, and I think the most impressive statistic there is the, um, is the growth rate in jobs. And so they created, in just a few years, a spectacular new industry. So looking at another one of our C21 roofs in North London and then messing it up with, just to ram home the point about the impact of policy here and governments who get it and how um, governments can lead in ways that create a hope and uh, you know, fast-growing markets. You can see the yellow there is when the feed-in tariff comes in. Um, Italy, France, even good old Belgium, you can see the impacts of the feed-in tariff in the year after they were introduced. And the UK bumbling along uh, as a pathetic, tiny little market with no feed-in tariff, but in, uh, hopefully that's all going to change next year. Now, obviously, this fast growth is doing stuff that business people and investors like. Uh, and so, inevitably, Fortune magazine, one of the great um, skions of, uh, of, of the business um, media, has its first solar-powered CEO, not solar-powered, its first solar CEO on the, on, on the front cover. And he's my friend, Zhengrong Shi from China, and his company, SunTech, didn't exist in 2001. Uh, and now it's the second biggest manufacturer of solar cells in the world. It's come out of nowhere, grown like a rocket, with enlightened policymaking behind it in China. And, and big elements of the Chinese government um, no matter what Mark Linus says, <laughs> do get it ab about this. Um, although, of course, the picture is very complex and there are plenty of people advocating coal in China as well. So what about the constraints? on it? Is, is this just a pipe dream because it'll only ever be a fringe thing? Um, no, this isn't controversial. Even our government believes this. This is our former leader um, talking on the eve of the Energy White Paper in 2003. Solar energy alone could meet the world energy demand, not electricity demand, energy demand, using less than 1% of land now under crops and pasture. Well, hopefully, he's only talking about um, that as an illustration. He doesn't want us to join the um, ignominious company of biofuels in <laughs> taking crops and pasture. We could do it on buildings. We could do it on scrubland, etc., etc. Uh, Shell themselves uh, in 2001 made an interesting calculation, which is what's the renewable resource of the world? An answer um, 
even if you assume 10 billion people consuming energy of 15% above what we are consuming it at in the EU, a ridiculous proposition, but just for argument's sake, only in, Europe, uh, only in Europe here would we need to be doing any energy efficiency at all to meet the demand with renewables. And, you know, um, Shell uh, put out this kind of thing, BP put out this kind of thing, um, giving the impression that they're acting on this kind of stuff. But I think those of us who follow the nuances of what they're saying and what they're doing um, know that they're not. And here's one observation to make about the business world. We have to work with it, but uh, we are often working against massive grain. Um, there's a book that some of you may have heard of called The Innovator's Dilemma by a guy from a faculty member at the Harvard Business School, Clayton Christensen. And he charts the history of disruptive technologies, technologies that you know, are capable of taking massive market share very quickly. So the microcomputer, for example, replacing the mainframe was a disruptive technology. And he looks at the history of commerce, and here's a sobering thing, a very sobering thing. Never once in human history has a company with a technology or an industry threatened by a disruptive technology ever commercialized it, ever. And that's right down to the disk drives in computers. So here is something that we need to think about very carefully. And as I say when I go talk to Shell and BP, guys, come on, you've got to break, the, you've got to break history here. You've got to um, really go for this stuff and commercialize it. Of course, they're not going to. Shell and BP are going backwards on renewables, uh, apart from maybe biomass, biofuels. Um, they're just playing, uh, and it's, it's very sad to see because they don't have the cultural integrity to say that's what's going on. You know, we're, we're oil men. We do oil and gas. That's what we do. You know, it's, that's not what they say. They come up with all this utter garbage and greenwash in their marketing. Another resource constraint is we can argue about how big those... Uh, blobs are down there for the fossil fuels and uranium, and there are different views, of course, but the point is clear. However big they are, they're finite resources, and this is the annual irradiation of solar um, on the planet. So, you know, this technology is not called renewable for nothing. Um, and you look at all this, and the resources, and the, the fact that we're sort of melting sand at the top end of the solar value chain, there's lots of sand on the planet, and you think, wow, um, how would we ever remotely explain this to some uh, extraterrestrial extra traveler? Very difficult to imagine actually facing that task and coming up with a coherent defense of uh, Homo sapiens and his and her activities on the planet as things stand. Constraints in cloudy Britain. These are solar roofs from Google Earth. Um, all of the U-shaped products, and note that they can be north-south, they don't have to be south-facing, as seen from space. Um, and this is very exciting because, you know, you, this is a lot of installations and we have this feeling that we're at an inflection point with this industry. But if we were silly enough to do this on every roof, just to give you a feel of what's available, how much electricity could we provide? We would, no one's saying we should do this. It would be a nutty thing to do because you've got all the other members of the family, right? But suppose we did do it. What could we provide? We've worked this out, the UK Photovoltaic Manufacturers Association. That's us and Sharp and various other companies. And the answer is more than all the electricity we currently consume 
in our electricity profligate country under grey British skies. So if you want the calculations to all this, and the background comes from land registry statistics and various university profs disagree with us, um, but, uh, you know, whatever. We, <laughs> this, these are our calculations. They're available off the UK Photovoltaic Manufacturers Association site. And it just, you know, il illustrates what could be done if um, we had the mind to face up collectively to change. The value chain in this industry is really simple. It's melting sand at the top end, uh, turning it into ingots, and then it goes into modules and the systems at the bottom end of the value chain where we are. So, you know, this is not uranium. There's a lot of sand on our planet. And um, without pretending that this is a, a magic bullet, it's certainly got a long way to go before we face any constraints that we know of. I won't go through the companies, but you could see around the world Different companies have chosen different strategies. Some have tried to dominate the whole value chain. Others, like my own, have said, you know what, we'll just be specialists, brilliant uh, companies specializing in one part of the value chain. So all of this would amount to not a hill of beans if it wasn't going to make sense economically and if uh, Tony Hayward was right in saying it would never be economic, never be economic without a technological breakthrough. But he is wrong, big time. Um, as you would find if you phone up any investment bank and talk to any group of analysts, and there are large numbers of them following this market now. I won't go through the numbers. I'll just leave you visually to scan across the value chain. You're looking at cost in black and price in blue, and you see the main point there. Uh, according to this group, Barclays Research, we're going down from a price of $7 global average prices to 4 within a couple of years. Our prices and costs are coming down, just as they did in the digital revolution with semiconductors. Meanwhile, in the red lines, uh, the prices of um, traditional electricity are going up. You may know energy bills in this country have gone up an average of 5% a year for the last 10 years. Um, and meanwhile, the survival technologies, where we have to go to beat climate change, many of the prices and costs are coming down. Again, if you want all that detail, uh, it's off the, available off the Photovoltaics Manufacturers Association. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what do we make of Copenhagen? What, what, I mean, everyone's trying to digest the horrific prospects now that the, the whole thing is going to come off the track. Um, my view here is it can't. Uh, no matter what the skeptics um, are doing by way of success with their email um, leaking campaign and all the rest of it. This stuff is too uh, deep into the zeitgeist. Um, this is the front cover of Vanity Fair. I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, this is Vanity Fair, for heaven's sake. A threat graver than terrorism um, and all the green icons of our age clad in green. And the usual fair of Vanity Fair, Sex and the City for Teens, relegated to sort of four-point font at the bottom of the, <laughs> of the front cover. And this one's even better. This is a recent full-page ad in um, The Economist. You look at it first up, you think, crikey, how on earth did WWF or Greenpeace get the, pick, the, the money to do this kind of advertising? Full-page. Daddy, what did you do in the war on global warming? The little boy is saying. You know, I, I like to think Greenpeace might have been a little bit more sophisticated, actually. <laughs> uh, and then you look at what, um, who's taking out the advert. It's uh, 
It's a gas company. It's a fossil fuel company. And I think you probably appreciate why they have to do this, not because they necessarily believe it, but to get good people to come and work for them. Uh, this is, you talk to people in companies, this is absolutely understood. And so whatever we accuse these companies of uh, greenwash, and by God many of them are guilty of horrendous greenwash, this is what they're dealing with. Now, um, one of the, I've learned many things in recent years, but one of the things that still amazes me, I, and I check it every time I can, I wonder how many people here know the average age of the worker in the, in the oil industry. I'm talking about the graduate students that they employ everybody, uh, globally. Any offers? Four, 49. 49. The average retirement age is 55. This is arguably their biggest problem. It's a, it's a massive problem. And we'll come back to it a little bit when I talk about the energy crisis in a minute. Of course, a clean tech company like mine, uh, you know, it's sad. You, the, I'd hate to be in the HR department. They're just besieged with people desperate to come and work in the survival technologies where they can, they can feel good about what they're doing. And we talk about these targets and timetables for, um, you know, uh, renewables, European Union, we have a 20% target by 2020. But actually what we're seeking to do is look for tipping points with disruptive technologies that are capable of going what the internet call, people call crazy viral. That's what this is all about. And um, the good news, you know, the, the thing we're reaching for, the thing that gets people like me out of bed uh, in the morning and not too distressed when, um, you know, uh, things go a bit awry like they did in, in Copenhagen, is the knowledge that these technologies, these survival technologies, with the right tactics and strategies, can go crazy viral. Now, um, speed of mobilization, I want to talk uh, a little bit about the energy crisis here. I can't hope to do any more in the time available than interest you in the issue if you don't know about it already. But what you're looking at here, again, in magazine front covers, is the perceived wisdom uh, of what's available. And Newsweek, this is April 2009, cheap oil forever. This is after we fell off the price of the high oil, oil in, um, in 2008, uh, where it reached 147 dollars and a barrel and fell right back to 30. So this is some uh, business journalist sticking his or her neck out and he goes on the front cover and lots of people, you know, are, are de again desperate to believe that comforting narrative because if you've got expensive oil, it changes everything. It changes everything completely. There are um, growing numbers of us who just don't buy this bullshit anymore. And um, that includes in industry. So whereas someone from BP would be here today to tell you that, yes, we live in an oil-addicted um, society, uh, but don't worry too much because we know the demand is, is growing off for a bit into the future and we can, we can keep meeting it into the next decade, maybe even the decade beyond, uh, there are those of us who think, no. Uh, we can't. And this report was published this week, the Oil Crunch second uh, annual report of this group, uh, chaired by Virgin, but with a Scottish and Southern big energy company involved, Stagecoach Transport Company, Arabs, a big engineering company, 
And this is what we think is going to happen. We hope we're wrong, but we think there's going to be a peak of global oil production in a world expecting and reassured by BP and the rest that it's going to go right on rising. Um, and it's not. It's going to stop and it's going to descend. It's going to descend potentially quickly. So um, this is a big warning. It's a big debate. And if you remember one thing from this talk, it's, uh, let it be this. This is my prediction um, from where I'm sitting, standing, looking at you all now. My prediction is this thing is going to be the single biggest issue in your young lives, no matter where you go to work or whatever you do when you, when you finish at university. Uh, now, I hope I'm wrong in this, but uh, if that doesn't inter interest you enough to read the report and form a considered opinion, then um, please uh, just do it for, um, to help me out. Um, What's the, what's the real issue like? Well, just to give you a flavor for it, uh, before our first report came out, just afterwards, the World Energy Outlook from the International Energy Agency uh, kind of joined us on the platform. So if you think about this, this is a bit like, you know, the credit crunch was predicted by some people, but that was a few maverick economists and one or two far-sighted um, financial journalists like Gillian Tett at the Financial Times. Uh, and they said, you know, to the bonus cultists, your, your house of cards is going to come tumbling down. And they all said, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, all the others, how dare you criticize us? You, you are guilty of scaremongering. Gillian Tett, capital markets editor of the Financial Times, accused of scaremongering on the main stage at the World Economic Forum. And, um, you know, their argument was, We've squeezed risk out of complex derivatives. You don't understand what we're doing. Uh, trust us. And of course, many of us did trust them. That was the perceived wisdom. And yet they got their asset assessment on their balance sheet fundamentally, systemically, ruinously wrong. And what we fear is that the oil industry is doing the same. And the difference this time is you've got big companies predicting it. You've got the international energy agency predicting. That's a bit like the World Bank saying four, five years before the financial crisis. Guys, the house of cards is going to come down. And it's going to come down on your watch. You'll be asked to clear up the mess. All those old geezers in the oil industry will be retired. You know, average retirement age is 55. And um, this is going to add to the complexities of dealing with climate change. And this is the one diagram from this report, if you get so far with your interest as to look at this, uh, of course it's on page 200, as the um, vital diagrams usually are in reports, but you can see straight away uh, what the problem is here. And the problem is the blue. The problem is the crude oil from currently producing fields, which starts sort of tomorrow to collapse. And this is not us or uh, advocates, it's the International Energy Agency. And to fill that gap with projected demand, you've got to do all the stuff in the pastel shades. You've got to bring in six Saudi Arabias of new capacity. And I'm here to tell you today, they don't have a snowball's chance in hell of doing that for all sorts of reasons that we go into in the report. And the IEA, if they were giving this talk, would say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, 
and kind of, you'd have to read in the body language what I just said to you, but for many of those people, you get them off the record in the bar afterwards and they'll tell you, forget it, it's, uh, it's all going to start collapsing. What we fear then is, in a worst case, um, there'll be a wave of realisation through the world, just as there was with the financial crisis. You know, one week, as had been for months and years before, the perceived wisdom was they've squeezed risk out of complex derivatives. It's a whole new nirvana of um, repackaging asset-backed, uh, mortgage-backed assets and, you know, all the rest of that uh, scuff that we now have the benefit of hindsight to look back on. And the same with oil. Uh, you, you'll, you, we're in that phase where um, the majority of people think everything's okay, the comfortable narrative is fine, but then the panic sets in in just a few weeks, as it did with the financial crisis, and we fear the same thing here, so that oil-consuming countries and oil-producing countries alike actually have this wave of realisation um, and at that point, the oil producers themselves start saying, hey, we, maybe we have been culturally, systemically more over-optimistic about oil, and they start keeping it back for their own multi-hundred billion dollar infrastructure programs and multi-hundred billion ruble infrastructure programs. And to illustrate this point, uh, let me rather unfairly pick Dubai and this picture of three tower blocks in the desert in 1990 and show you those three tower blocks in context today. And this stuff is continuing, you see. They're building, they're building this kind of stuff in the desert in Saudi Arabia. And the Russians have great infrastructure plans and it's all massively oil dependent. They're burning oil in power plants in Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi and the rest of it. So this is going to interface with all your concerns about climate change. It's not going to make climate change going to go away, but it will drive us, uh, if this analysis is correct, very quickly to mobilize stuff that can close the gap. Now, some of that stuff is the same technology that we need for dealing with climate change. Other stuff, tar sands and liquids from coal, deepens the climate crisis. And, and here's my point. This is where your battleground is going to be. We have to win that argument. When the crisis comes, we have to win the argument about going to clean tech and not get panicked into going to coal for liquids and Qatar sands and all the rest of it. And here's the point about mobilization. Uh, when you look at what we would have to do for climate change, um, you find that you know getting to zero by 2050 you'd be mobilizing at rates of less than 3% a year. That doesn't sound too difficult, does it? Getting out of fossil fuels at 3% a year? I mean, of course we can do that. But if uh, we get a peak oil collapse scenario like the industry group fears, you've got to go an order of magnitude faster. Now, good news is, with this technology you can. You can put this kind of stuff up, solar thermal and solar photovoltaic, you're not even, you've got room for grass on the roof. And these buildings can be Zero emissions, you can put them up in weeks with the right partners. Flat-backed, off-site constructed, all this is doable. And massive programs if we go house by house, street by street, community by community, and car by car, uh, you, you know, these things can be, that can be done. And um, uh, even if it's at the level of giant power plants, they can be put up quicker than nuclear power plants can. And here's the interface with nuclear, lest any of you 
get tempted by the siren you know, call of, of nuclear, they are a vampire. They will take resources away from the genuine survival technologies and they still won't be able to deliver. This is the um, Finland uh, reactor, one of the two that's under construction for the next generation, years behind schedule, billions of euros over budget. You, if you were a fiction writer, you couldn't invent the problems that the nuclear industry have, and yet still that narrative goes on. We can cut emissions, we are part of the solution, and worse now, worse, because the chief executives of EDF and E.ON have both said to governments, you can't have renewables and nuclear, you can't have big renewables and nuclear, and by that they mean 20% renewables in the energy mix. So they've kind of declared war on us, uh, and it's a big battle of ideas. Uh, the, the, the energy policy debate is often very arcane, seems very arcane, but these are matters of life and death and um, huge stakes. Don't believe the nuclear people, is my advice. Meanwhile, this stuff can go up fast. Here's an example, that installation you saw earlier in Berlin. Um, 300 kilowatts of, uh, and there are all the stats, all the modules, 35 kilometers of string cable. How long did it take to put it all up and connected to the grid, generating electricity? Not 10 years, but 10 weeks, including in uh, cloudy conditions. So running economies, um, there's a great paper in Scientific American from November um, of last year uh, done by some modelers at the University of Stanford and Berkeley. And this is what you could do in order, this is what you have to do in order to meet power demands worldwide in 2030. If it's from conventional mix, you're up at about 17 terawatts, up from 12 and a half today, uh, 11 and a half uh, with renewables, look at the resource you have, available resources, this is excluding all the mountains, all the city areas, the places you couldn't put, uh, the water, solar and wind families, and this is how you do it. They worked it out down to the number of power plants, CSP, photovoltaic, the number of rooftops you'd need, the number of turbines, 3.8 million, not unimaginable in a world building so many cars, um, and these are the water-based power plants. You can power the world with renewables if you just can but get your head around the challenge of change, and that's a big but for many people with the cultures and the belief systems that we have. Um, in that paper, they talk about California on a typical July day in 2020, and here you see how the load matching works at the 24-hour scale with solar and wind, but it also works in a winter seasonal scale with wind and solar um, complementing themselves pretty well um, over those time frames as well. And no, no biomass, no biogas in this. This is just modeling with hydro, uh, solar, wind, and geothermal. The Germans have uh, done a national experiment, a scaled experiment, uh, actually financed by the economics ministry. There's a website if you want to read it, um, and they too uh, come to the conclusion that you could power the German economy uh, purely with renewables. 